You're listening to the Young Arthroplasty Group Augment podcast channel, part of AUKUS Amplified from the American Association of Hip and Knee Surgeons, advancing hip and knee patient care through education, advocacy, research, and outreach. I am Mark Mildren in private practice at the Slocum Center for Orthopedics in Eugene, Oregon. And I'm David Landy, an academic hip and knee replacement surgeon at the University of Kentucky in Lexington, Kentucky. And I'm Anna Cohen-Rosenblum, an academic hip and knee surgeon at Louisiana State University in New Orleans. And we're very excited today to have our guest, Dr. Cody Wiles, who is a hip and knee surgeon at a little-known place called the Mayo Clinic in Minnesota. So welcome, Cody. Thank you, Anna. Great to be here. Great to have you. So we wanted to talk to you about, you have a symposium coming up about, I believe it's artificial intelligence. So why don't you tell us a little bit more about that for some of our listeners who may not know, what is artificial intelligence? Yeah, well, thank you. Excited to talk about it. Yeah, so we have a symposium this evening moderated by my colleague, Dr. Michael Taunton, and we'll be doing this in conjunction with Prem Ram Kumar, who's published a lot in the AI space, as well as Victor Krebs, one of his mentors from Cleveland Clinic. So what we really want to do with this symposium is give the practicing orthopedic surgeon that might view artificial intelligence as something very esoteric and removed from their practice and show you what's actually here and now, implementable immediately, and a lot of things that are within the near-term future, two to five-year time frame, not the 20, 30-year space odyssey type of time frame that people have in their minds. Do you mind giving us just a quick overview of how is AI going to change our practice in the next five years? Yeah, absolutely. So I think there's a couple discrete domains. So AI is suited for certain tasks. It's not a fix-all, but there are certain things that it's very good at. Automating mundane tasks and improving our speed and efficiency at certain things. One of the things I'll be talking about in the symposium tonight is how we can use AI to automatically annotate salient features of radiographs. We know that the radiology reports that we often don't contain the information that we really care about. So we're working on algorithms that will automatically give you in every x-ray report your acetabular component position, whether your femoral component has subsided between serial x-rays, has there been interval bone loss, new radiolucencies, things like that. On another front, we're working on patient-specific risk prediction. So AI is really powerful at taking large multimodal data sets and integrating data sets from the EMR, taking radiographic data, and giving you a more comprehensive phenotype of a patient. So if you have somebody that's coming into your clinic, we know not all patients are created equal. So if Mrs. Jones and Mrs. Anderson comes in and I'm worried about their dislocation or periprosthetic fracture risk, we're developing tools that'll help us give a patient-specific risk for them so that we can make more informed decisions on who we might cement, for example, to prevent periprosthetic fracture, who we might go to a dual mobility on in a more judicious way. That's really interesting thinking about like improved risk prediction. How is a model created at, for instance, the Mayo Clinic where the variables may be recorded slightly differently than at Louisiana State University? How are we gonna ensure that these models can be translatable across different practice settings? Yeah, that's an excellent question, and it's a huge limitation, but one that is also potentially solvable by a different form of AI. So something I haven't talked about yet is called natural language processing. That's a really exciting area, and I think that that has the power really to allow us to standardize our data sets and really create local registries from scratch, augment existing registries with data points that were not previously prospectively collected, and that can feed into local regional and then eventually national registries like AJRR. So an example of that is when we pull data points out of our registries at Mayo Clinic or at your local institution, you're usually taking 
structured data, things that are clicked buttons, things that can be easy input, easy output. We're really good at that. We do it with ICD-10 codes and things of that nature. What natural language processing allows you to do is take unstructured data out of the EMR. So like an operative note, if Anna dictates an operative note, we can't automatically just pull what approach she did, things like uh, fixation of her posterior. Yeah, there you go. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I tried three and a half weeks in Britain to convert you and I failed apparently. I failed you miserably. But what natural language processing allows you to do is develop algorithms that can interpret our speech, that can be flexible to our different ways of dictating, for example, and pull out these elements in a consistent way. So if I give my operative report to a central repository that has this algorithm, and so does Anna, it will be able to tell which surgical approach we did, whereas otherwise that would not be possible. So this is one way that we can potentially standardize our data. What if Anna spoke in a British accent, though? Would it still still work? Believe it or not, at the end of our fellowship, she told me she was the whole time, and I never recognized her. It was so bad. First of all, I've heard you try to do, but you know what was more embarrassing than us trying to do British accents in our traveling fellowship is our British co-fellows trying to do American accents. That was shout out to James Shelton. He was terrible. I hope he listens to this. Yeah, James was even a second level of disgrace because he tried to specifically mimic the Cajun accent that's, of your native Louisiana, right, and that, right. that was an unmitigated disaster. But, I think we can all but agree. But let's, let's bring it back a little bit for our listeners. So I want to talk to you a little bit about the traveling fellowship that we did earlier this year. So tell me about that. So what did you enjoy? What, what, was, what were the pros? What were the cons? Should our listeners look into traveling fellowships themselves? Yeah, the traveling fellowship was terrific. Experience of a lifetime, highlight of my training and career for sure. Made best by the partnership of Anna, absolutely. And we had terrific fellows from the UK as well that just made a, a great group of four that we could share ideas. Every day it was just constant debate on different techniques. We learned so much from every site. They all put on an amazing show for us, great cultural experience, great history, and just an overall good time. So I would recommend it highly to anybody. It was phenomenal. And this is the Hip Society, British Hip Society Traveling Fellowship that they're revamping as of this year to include two surgeons from the U.S. and two surgeons from the U.K. Was there any downsides for you? I mean, I could talk about it. It was really tough to be away from the family for me, you know, because in the long hours and everything. I don't know. Anything for you that stood out as potentially a challenge? Yeah, I think just my own physiologic weakness was a, was a challenge. Um, <laughs> You know, all these centers, they want to show you their best 72 hours, and it's a lot of fun. But uh, you rinse and repeat that 10 times in a row, and, and you're dragging by the end. But it's all well worth it. So I'm going to do a little role reversal here. What are your fondest memories of the fellowship? What are the things you will take home and tell everybody about? I have to say, I was not expecting this to be a highlight. But the sports matches that we went to were, were a lot of fun. So we saw a... Uh, sports matches? The sports, that's what they... The, we, saw, we saw the football. We saw the football. <laughs> the, the football. It's the not football. called the football. It is we called didn't. the football, right? <laughs> I don't know. We'll confirm this later. But we saw the football at Arsenal. That was very cool. There were a lot of chants. I really loved how, like, in the U.S., when somebody gets mad at the ref they'll just be like you suck ref and everybody will just be yelling but in the uk so we went to another 
football match in Sheffield Wednesday. But the game was on Saturday, for clarification. Well, yeah, exactly. That's their actual There's name, a, Sheffield Wednesday. If you want to look up Sheffield Wednesday, you'll see the whole thing. But when they had a ref that they didn't agree with, and all of a sudden, in unison, the whole crowd sang together, you're not fit, you're not fit, you're not fit to referee. It was very, like, very impressive. They just went as one. So it was a lot more organization at the sports matches in the UK than in the US, I would say. It sounds a little bit better than the University of Oregon chant that happened a couple of weeks ago and, uh, when BYU came to play, but we won't get into that. I do want to ask, what was the most interesting operative technique that you both saw over there? And this may seem simple to some, but I really liked seeing cement and cement revision, right? Because that's not something... <laughs> that we see a lot in the U.S. And we went to uh, Exeter and saw Matt Wilson over there do a very excellent, to my eyes, job of cement revisions. And I just thought just seeing that up close and learning the techniques and learning the indications and seeing that, yes, it is possible to do that in the U.S., even though we really don't do it very much. And I think there's actually a good symposium at this year's AUKUS annual meeting about cementing femoral stems that should help everybody here learn a little bit more about something that I think we don't do enough of in the U.S. Before we get to Cody's answer to that question. With the trends in cemented fixation for the femoral stem being more common over the last five or 10 years in America, you know, there may be a bigger need for us to do that. If you could just leave us with one or two things you took away and how to execute that technique. Well, I thought the most important thing that I saw there was the demonstration of how to assess whether a cement mantle is appropriate for that cement and cement revision technique, making sure that it's uh, actually fixed well with a good mantle, something you can't necessarily fully determine radiographically. So intraoperatively, making sure that the cement mantle is appropriate before you even proceed with a cement and cement revision technique. Yeah, absolutely. I thought that was one of the most fascinating things we saw, and we got to see it really in the one of the birthplaces of uh, excellent cement technique with the taper slip design from the Exeter. You know, one of the things Matt Wilson taught Anna and I us was you can take a cement and cement revision, and while that seems quite intimidating to us over here, in many cases that can become one of your more straightforward revisions for a couple reasons. If you have a good cement mantle, as Anna just said, you're burring that out so you're not creating intermedullary bleeding in the femur, so it's a very low blood loss case. You can do this in a way to where you can adjust your version, and then obviously cementing gives you a lot of flexibility with restoring leg length offset and version really as precisely as you want. So phenomenal, phenomenal to see right. the I mean, guys Im operate. Imagine the difference between revising a femoral stem for instability and doing an ETO to take that out and then putting in a new stem, right, versus you know, tapping out a cemented stem, cleaning it out, burying a little bit about the cement mantle, and then cementing a new one in with some more version, right? So, I mean, the difference is... Yeah, absolutely. I left with a lot more confidence that that'll be my preferred approach for a patient that comes in needing a femoral fish in the appropriate cases. But we also saw them show great demonstrations of how you can even address Vancouver B2 periprosthetic fractures with a cemented technique. And so we got a lot of tips on how to manage some, some of the complex problems we see. One of the things that I did want to ask back to AI is how do you practically see that being rolled out in the next five to ten years? Do you see it being a commercial product? Do you see it being something that's readily available like nationally? Is this something that the AJRR is going to make available? Like how do I get access to this algorithm that's been done? How do I actually get that information as a practitioner? Yeah, I think it'll depend on the specific application we're talking about. Some of them will be commercial. You know, a few of these things I was talking about, like patient-specific risk prediction tools and automatic radiographic annotation, we are 
beta testing those in our own PAC system in EMR at Mayo over the next year, make sure it's really good before we make it available for public use. To the question about some of these NLP algorithms, one of the things I've been focusing on a lot over the last year is externally validating them. So we developed these algorithms at Mayo Clinic. I did my fellowship at Ortho Carolina, and we tried these out in their system, iteratively improved them. And really the goal is to have these be launched in a platform to where people could just submit their operative notes to a central repository, perhaps at AJRR, and populate their own data without a big human resource or capital investment at your own institution. So I think we're within a couple years of being able to do something like that. I'll also put out a plug for uh, the American Joint Replacement Research Collaborative, the P30 Center Grant, centered at Mayo Clinic, but it's also a distributive network throughout the United States that tries to provide these resources and infrastructure, really, to get these data sets ready and usable at the level of AJRR. Is there any thought being given to the idea that there could be some unintended consequences of the use of artificial intelligence, like certain groups may be identified at high risk and then may ultimately have difficulties with access to care? Is that a consideration Especially in the variables? payment Yes, yes. Yeah. yeah, is that a consideration that maybe certain variables shouldn't be allowed in to the AI or...? Yeah, it's a terrific question for a variety of reasons. And so a bias is always a question of ours in research. And I think it's even more concerning and even more important to interrogate and investigate in AI because AI gets a little bit of a bad rap for giving black box outputs that it's not always able to explain the conclusions it comes to. And so that can be troublesome if it's creating systematic biases against particular groups that we're not aware of or we become aware of all too late. So there's a lot of effort being put into this question, making AI models more explainable, but we're very cognizant of that with the work that we're doing and trying to make sure that we're controlling for that to the degree possible. But on the other side of the coin, you can also use AI to improve systemic biases that exist. So for example, in our data sets in the upper Midwest, in Rochester, Minnesota, our racial and ethnic background of our patient population is not representative of the entire United States. And one of the things you can do with what's known as generative models in AI is create synthetic radiographs, for example, or synthetic data sets from scratch, and in doing so, rebalance the overall data set to be more representative of the population you want it to mimic. So we need to be cautious, but there's also opportunities to make it perhaps even better than traditional statistical methods. Thank you to Dr. Cody Wiles for joining us today, and we look forward to seeing your AI symposium later today. Thank you, Anna. It was great to participate, and look forward to next time. Thank you for joining us for the Young Arthroplasty Group Augment podcast channel. Visit AUKUS.org to learn more about how members of American Association of Hip and Knee Surgeons educate, advocate, investigate, and perform humanitarian outreach in the field of hip and knee replacement surgery.